I think we have to recover cultural memory of women, our full spectrum, not these very limited stereotypes that have been enforced on us to the point where we can't even expand our minds past them, but to see the, the entire range of who women have been, the capacities we have, and to expand ourselves. Hello, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Andrea. And welcome to this episode of Mother Unearthed, where we explore the lost history of the feminine. On today's episode, we have the dynamic Max Dashu. Max is an accomplished scholar and author known for her expertise in ancient goddess iconography, matrilineal cultures, female spheres of power, and female shamanism. Max's first book is called Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, and she'll publish another book later this year. In our conversation with Max, we cover many areas, including how ancient women-centered societies actually work, shamanism in general, and how female shamanism has been masculinized throughout history, and why she doesn't like the word feminine. Max is a pioneer in this area and has uncovered many unique insights into women's history throughout her decades of work. We enjoyed her candor and passion, and we're certain you'll come away with something new. Enjoy. Max, welcome. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We wanted to start off way, way back at the very beginning of your career. You got a full scholarship to Harvard, from what I understand, which is pretty amazing. But then you dropped out really early on to pursue your research on women's history. Yes. So I have a two-part question for you. Firstly, how did you discover this material at such a young age when it's so difficult for the rest of us to come across it? And then the second part of that question is, what gave you this incredible level of conviction to give up a full scholarship at Harvard to pursue the topic. Yeah, well, you know, I really so I was seeking out answers. The Harvard has is a pretty patriarchal institution. It was more so then. There was no such thing as women's studies. Women's history was literally a joke. And already enough things had happened in my life where I saw the devaluation of women. I wanted to know why. It was really a pressing question for me. Um, for for a variety of personal reasons and what was all just going on socially. Now, I got to remember 1969, the whole country was going, blowing up kind of. Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War movement. There were strikes. The Harvard strike was happening. You know, a lot of student strikes, were marches were happening. And even in that movement too, it was very male dominated. And hmm. so I really wanted to understand is there anywhere on the planet where women are free? That was, you know, I saw the contempt that women were held in, even in quote unquote progressive movements. And, you know, you would have first in the civil rights movement and then in the new left, men gave the speeches, women made coffee and, and mimeoed up statements. And most of the time, the important women were connected to important men. There were very few women who were leaders in their own right. So there was very strongly sexed um, devaluation going on there. And so I began, before I left school, I mean, one, one of my thoughts was, what am I doing in this ruling class college? I, I'm a working class woman. And, you know, it, it was really a culture shock for me to be there. It wasn't that I couldn't make the grade in uh, academic terms. I was doing fine with that. But all of this activism was going on. And I was very alienated. And so I had an anthropology professor who brought up the idea of matrilineal cultures simply in order to knock it down. 
Well, there are matrilineal societies, but it doesn't really mean anything because all societies are male-dominated. And I had never heard this word, matrilineal. Yeah. And immediately, knowing a little bit of Latin, I was like, okay, that well, this is something I've never heard of. And I knew immediately it was significant. Can you define the term matrilineal? I, I, I think yeah. I know what it means, right. but okay. it'd be helpful. So, it means that the social belonging is defined through the mother. And this is back okay. to mama's baby, papa's maybe. So it's a very stable okay. way of knowing exactly who the mother is, whereas we don't know who the father is, especially in these societies where there is not a really strict sexual double standard so that women may take multiple lovers, you know, like the Moswa society. And so you don't, you're not sure who the father is, you know? So it's very important for social belonging to know who your kin are. And so in a patrilineal culture, there are all these social rules and enforcements, including punishments of why women wind up being outsidered for not obeying the patriarchal rules. And this is all to keep the patrilineal system intact. So patrilineal is a lineage based on fatherhood. Matrilineal is a lineage based on motherhood. And that latter one is observable. But if you don't have a clearly observable paternity, and this is why you have societies that confine women and they're not supposed to go out of the house or they're, they're, they're supposed to be yeah. bailed and so forth, there are a lot of different kinds of constraints in, in patriarchal society, in male-dominated societies, in order to ensure fatherhood. So before I actually left the school, I was going into the library and looking at indigenous societies, looking for cultures that were matrilineal, where women had significant spheres of public power. And um, so that was where my research began. I never set out at that point to start an archive. I just wanted to know. So then uh, a couple years later, I had moved out to the West Coast. A woman at UCLA Film School who was making one of the first feminist documentaries called Woman to Woman, and she wanted to have a section in it on women's history. Now, this is all very new. This is still, women's studies is just, just beginning at this point. So it wasn't even a welcome subject in academia, which is a big reason why I left. It's like, I knew that if I studied this topic, that I was going to be graded down for anything I wrote about it, you know, and it just seemed like yeah. a setup. So I just, you know, we were talking about Uranus. I just broke away. I said, let me out of here. This is, this is not working for me. I'm going to try and do this on my own as an independent scholar. And so I began reading everything I could lay hands on. And at that point, you have to understand it was card catalogs. There was no internet. There was no way to search term anything. Right. And so trying to find matriarchies in the card right. catalog was very thin pickings. They were, uh, you know, you would look up women and there would be housewife, there would be marriage, makeup, fashion, motherhood, those kinds of things. And there was nothing about female leaders. It was nothing certainly about matrilineal societies under women. And so the way that the organization of information had been set up was already severely biased. Mm. And so it took me a while because I had to kind of really, it took me years to figure out where the good stuff was to be found. My, one of my first starting points, I'm looking for matri matriarchal societies and trying to track those down. And most of what was in print at that time was the same dogma. Oh, matri matri matriarchal societies, well, you know, they're not really, women, women don't really have any power in those societies. It's just that the lineage is through the mother. But, you know, that's a centering of women in the social uh, organization that's significantly mm -hmm. different from patriarchal societies, mm. you know, and, and the reason is not because women are better, but it's because in order to have a patrilineal system, mama's baby, papa's maybe, 
You don't know who the father is unless you control women. So women's Mm. movements, women's ability to associate, women's ability to be in public, and some very severe punishment because there are societies where women were buried alive or stoned to death for being independently sexual. Men could do those things, but as long as they didn't touch some other man's rich man's daughter or something. So I was looking at the sexual politics of social structure. Now, in that time period, when you see, like they would talk about egalitarian societies, they were talking about foraging cultures, what they'll often call hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. which don't have, mostly don't have class systems, okay? And so they meant class egalitarian, but nobody seemed to want to address what about e- equality between females and males in mm. a society. That, was a, that mm-hmm. was a taboo subject. It was very unwelcome. So I'm going around, I'm just, I'm reading everything I can. I'm trying to get a sense. I mean, there was a whole lot to learn because I ne- needed not only to track where are the matrilineal societies, but also where are the empires because domination-based societies, my thesis was, if you have a class or ethnic domination, if you have an empire, then it's very unlikely that you're going to have uh, egalitarian relations between men and women. And that, that proved out. So I was really looking at indigenous societies. And then the second thing that was really, especially my early research, was that I was trying to see in archaeology, the further back you go in time, did we have different patterns, right? Did we have non-warfare-based economies? Did we, what, what what does the oldest archaeology show us about human beings? And I found that there was this pattern of ancient female figurines, which begins in the Paleolithic. And then mm-hmm. it's a very strong pattern. Uh, women are central to the iconography of the Neolithic. So when you see- And would you put like the Venus figurines in that yeah, only category? I, only I don't call them that. I'll have to send you a link because that name was given by a French aristocrat who had, oh. had an idea that these figurines represented sex, that in fact, women represented sex. Women don't have any- mm independent quality mm-hmm. on our own. And so he found one of these Paleolithic figurines on his estate in France. And he said, oh, it is the immodest Venus because she was not covered at all. She was naked. So I, I wrote a whole article, they are not F- Venus figurines, to explain how this gets spun. Because again, women are sex. This is the message of that terminology. And, you know, this is a patriarchal idea that women equals some, someone who is used for sex. That, that's the significance, right? So um, I'll try to send you the link for that. Anyway, it was just dawning at that time. This was in the 18th century. It was just dawning that there was this, these other cultural patterns. And if we look at the Paleolithic, there are male figurines, but they're massively outnumbered by the female ones. And that was also true of a lot of Neolithic societies. So we're talking about 6,000, 5,000, 4,000 BCE, the Neolithic, you know, in Iraq and Iran and Syria, different parts of the world. So there was a lot to track. And uh, the figurines was one because I thought, you know, I'm looking for women. And I'm going through all these books. My starting point was they'd be these big coffee table books, The Dawn of Man. And it was kings and generals and great male philosophers and that kind of thing. And then women were very, very peripheral. Occasionally, you'd find one of these little figurines, but it would be a little black and white photo, not very good quality. And then the big color plates were the emperors and, you know, the dynasts. So I'm noticing these patterns. And 
I went through a great deal of material in excavation reports. Anything I could get, Ecuador, Mexico, um, China, India. I found the uh, figurines of the Indus Valley. You know, there was a very strong pattern of female figurines in that whole area of Pakistan, in North India. And so at that point, I'm just kind of gathering information and seeing these patterns, which are very different than like the female iconography in those figurines is qualitatively different than what we're used to in this society, where women are supposed to be pretty, young, slim, but with big breasts, very much dolled up. And I'm looking at these figurines from Western Mexico, and these women have very wide bodies. They're strong. Their arms are thick. They're used to carrying loads. They are really self-possessed. They're not looking out coyly at the male gaze. They are fully inhabiting their bodies. And so there's this very different feeling. And you get this in the Paleolithic stuff, the figurines there too. So I'm just kind of tracking all this and just gathering information and looking for the matrilineal societies. And this goes on for years and years. But what happens once I came out to Berkeley was I got put in touch with this filmmaker and I went down to Venice, California. We, we drove around to all the university libraries with a copy camera and slide film. And we took slides, which were going to go into Donna Dietsch's film. And, and was this after you dropped out of Harvard? Yeah, it was four years later. And so that was really, you know, when I left, when I left college, it was kind of hard for me to get into the libraries. I was going to public libraries. Access to university libraries gives you a whole other qualitative set of images and information than most of what you find in the public libraries. There are exceptions, of course, but I'm just waking up and it's like, wow, here's Japan. Look at the Jomon culture, which begins somewhere like around 11,000 BCE. And it continues for over 10,000 years. And, you know, that, those clay figurines, which are sometimes painted up with red, which represents vitality in a lot of this iconography, those figurines are overwhelmingly female. So there's a significance to the way that there's, they're mm -hmm. centered on the life givers. And very, there are certain patterns around the figurines. And I've done a whole study on this. One is that they're, they're holding their breasts. I'm the life giver, right? The, there's a very strong focus on the life support system in, in the matriarchal societies. One of the things that's interesting in it, before pottery comes into the picture, like in, in Southwest Asia, there's what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic. And so we don't really know who did the stone sculpture, but it's very likely what we know from the rest of the world to have been men. So men are also buying into this social system. They belong to the mother line. And we see that in living indigenous societies like the Moswa in Southwest China, the Minangkabau in Sumatra, Western Indonesia. There's a lot of these societies, the Pueblo societies, where um, men go out and marry out and join households of their wives, but then they also always keep a tie to the women of their mother line. And so there's this, you know, we're used to women going out, you know, women marry in. And the thing about that that's hard is because men are stronger, is if you marry mm -hmm. out, you're a wife going into maybe a faraway lineage somewhere, there's nobody on your side. So if the husband wants to beat you, there's nothing really to stop him, yeah. right? So there's, there's ways in which the woman-centered societies are structurally different. And those, those differences are very significant. Mm -hmm. Iconography of the culture shows us something 
about what their values are, what the social glue is, you see. So that was really what I was tracking is to see where, because, you know, you see a lot of very different uh, kinds of imagery. And say, if you look at ancient Greece, for example, they do have goddesses still, but the male warrior is the top dog. You know, you have the founders of dynasties, Mm -hmm. you have uh, domination, you have warriors in in the Iliad going out to other places and taking female captives and making slaves out of them, sex slaves, you know, but also taking them back to their homeland and putting them to work as weavers to create wealth. And this happened also in Sumeria. So the word for slave in Sumerian cuneiform is made up of the characters mountain woman. So the here are the Sumerians, they've taken over the lush river valleys. But up there in the mountains are different kinds of societies, and the Sumerians are slaving. They're, they're taking female captives. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, politics to this. How are these societies different from these other societies? In these matrilineal societies and the, the figurines you're referencing, Max, so you're saying that it's not necessarily sexual, which is what's put forward sometimes, but often represents vitality. Yeah. What else in your research has it shown that these matrilineal societies yeah. actually value? Well, there's a, there's a variety of characteristics that it's kind of like a stellium of related factors. So descent from the mother and it, the social unit is not husband-wife, but sister-brother. That's the primary relations. It's like there are husbands, there are wives, or maybe in the Lamoso case, they don't even have that. They just have lovers. They are communitarian societies, so they are not based so much on wealth accumulation, although that can happen in some societies. But they are more the life support system of the kindred. That's the basic value in a matriarchal or what I like to call the matricultural pattern. And so matrilineage is one factor. Another one, which I mentioned before, is matrilocality. So when you have a pairing between a woman and a man, if he comes to live with her kindred, there are built-in protections for her. And if he leaves, her children do not become homeless. Like in our society, you've got the nuclear family, and if the man deserts the woman, which happens a lot, then the children, the woman, can become homeless. They have no support. But in these, these cultural systems, there is a very strong value placed on the life matrix so that not just the mother taking care of her child, but all the sisters and all the brothers and the upper generations too, the grandmothers and the uncles, all are thinking about the welfare of the, the young. That's a really supreme value. So if you see Native people in North America, they talk a lot about the seventh generation, you know, going, uh, you know, keeping in mind what the Mm -hmm. impact of decisions made will be to the seventh generation. And that's that's a really matrifocal kind of value. Whereas wealth accumulation, you start kindreds, which may even be related to each other. But this one has accumulated a lot of riches. And these ones over here are poor and kind of hangers on. So this... This sexual politics is very much entangled with social class hierarchies. In ancient Rome, the common people were called the, the plebeians, which just means the people. Okay, mm-hmm. But the upper class, the, the senatorial class, are called patrician, those of the father. Eopatre, these are the, those with good fathers. Okay, So there's this focus on establishing a social 
hierarchy in which fatherhood is central. And when you do that, you know, you will get homeless women and children. You do have slavery in, in the Greek society. That's a very central component. If you read the Iliad, they're, they're slaving and taking female captives all over the place. And this is something that has been authenticated through Linear B. So they deciphered about 70 years ago, they deciphered Linear B, which is the writing that the Mycenaean Greeks borrowed from ancient Crete, which is a very famously matricultural society. So that script was not a literature. It was invented to keep records of wealth. How many slaves, how many jars of oil, how many jars of wheat? And they had tallies. Who had the land? Who was the lord of the land? And tangentially, you get information about them. This is coming out in my next book. You get information about how the social organization, you, you can see that, well, they did have priestesses, they did have goddesses, but they also had slavery. And, and there's this raiding culture that sails off to other places and drags home captives. So it's kind of, uh, Maria Gimbutas would call this a hybrid society. There's a mixture of older cultural forms that are still around, but there is very much this template of domination that's lowered over that, you know. And just for our audience, Maria Gambudas is the archaeologist who did a lot of research in the Neolithic era and discovered some of these goddess-worshipping societies. Is that right? Yes. And she documented that um, she was primarily centered in the Balkans. So from Greece all the way up through Serbia, Bulgaria, that region north of Greece. And she showed that for about a thousand years, you had societies that were very stable. There was no warfare. There were no fortifications. They were creating this beautiful ceramic art that was painted with spirals and all kinds of nature symbols. And again, a very stable society. Nobody was trying to get over on anybody else. It was it was egalitarian, uh, no wealth differentials to speak of. And they had uh, temples or shrines where you have this this very strong orientation to the Great Mother. Is it? And and it's very interesting when you look at the figurines because in addition to you know the ones that are holding their breasts, some of them have very large vulvas on them which can be painted with red. Or there are things having to do representations that have to do with vital power, right, of of the mothers and, and of the source. And these are these kinds of figurines. We find them in Egypt. They were buried with the dead. So there's kind of a sense of regeneration, of possible rebirth from the great mother. You know, some of the archaeologists, the, the, the old guard who were really um, not welcoming these new investigations, tried to say, well, they're toys or they might be pornography because anything that had the female form in it must necessarily be sexually used in some way. But yeah. you, you don't bury you don't bury your dead with porn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. So there, there's there's been or or with toys for that matter, maybe if it's a child you would, but they just found in Spain from about yeah. 45 centuries ago, there's a site called Valencina in southern Spain. And it's kind of facing across the Atlantic to Africa. And they have ivories. They have This woman was buried in a tomb. She's clearly an important social figure. They had a stone circle around her. And then later another burial was on top of her. But she had all this regalia in ivory and ostrich shell beads. And over Dang. her head was a gigantic elephant tusk. So there's wow. no burials like this, first mm. of all. And also all of the eminent burials in this culture were of women. 
And there are others from about 500 years later, the similar pattern, um, the Argaric Society. Only there, the women had silver uh, diadems with kind of a, a flat disc that rose up from it. So it's interesting to see gradually, gradually what's emerging in archaeology because it shows mm. us very different social relations than what we're used to seeing. Max, I'm curious, shifting gears here, as I know you've said before that you don't relate to the term feminine. Yeah. And I would love to dive in more on that topic. We see a lot of the use of the term feminine, of the term divine feminine. And right. There are many connotations to this language. And it's even something Andrea and I have discussed quite a bit uh, in relation to the podcast of how do we actually want to language and define what it is we're trying to do here? So I'd be really curious to hear your take on, on why you don't relate to that term and go from there. There are some words which are, in my mind, kind of beyond recovery. Maybe we will eventually be able to have the word feminine if the word feminine included if, if it really included all kinds of women, but feminine is so stereotyped. And this has to do with the culture of advertising, movies, magazines, television shows. There are no women without makeup on television. They're mostly young. So feminine has taken on, and this has been true for some time in our patriarchal society, a very limited narrow band. And so if it was true, like when women talk about the divine feminine, I see a lot of stuff on YouTube and just generally out there on the net. When they say the divine feminine, there are these sylph-like women floating along with long hair and robes and jewelry, and they're hardly ever old. They're not fat. They're not wide body. They're not muscular. Some of them have stick-like arms, which is very much in the mode of our uh, what the media presents to us. Mm. And so I find it very limiting. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. We had to wear skirts. There was no question. You had to wear skirts all the way through high school. They would make us kneel down and make sure our skirt touched the floor. It was it was really pretty much a command performance. And I rebelled against that. It was imposed on us. And I'm I'm gender noncompliant. I, I just really didn't want to to have to uh the frills and the skirts and the clothing that rides up when you lift your arm because it's so skimpily cut, you know, or even just like you go to one of the the fat, the outlets, one of the stores, and what is labeled as large is actually what used to be small in my lifetime. You know, so they're very tight yeah. clothing, very constraining, and I just don't want any part of it. If the divine feminine really included those husky, you know, if, if the connotations of it included those very strong, wide-bodied women in South America and Central America, if that's what came to your mind when you heard feminine then, you know, we might be able to reconstruct it, you know, that the feminine would include butches, that would include old women who were wrinkled and didn't have makeup, you know, or had cropped hair. But that's mm -hmm. not what anybody thinks of when you use that word. And so it becomes a very stereotyped thing, just like we were talking about with the Venus figurines. It's a preformed uh, projection of what women can be. Now, I'm not criticizing women who want to wear makeup, or skirts, all of that, whatever. I'm just saying that culturally there's a mandate, that that's how you're supposed to look. That's how you're supposed to behave. 
you know, and there have been some very interesting, like lady, right. a lady, you know, and ladies don't talk over men, men talk over them, you know, so there's a lot of behavioral codes that I would like to see overthrown, which is why I don't see the divine feminine as a liberating thing. It could be if it really included a broader spectrum of all women. So that's my, my piece on that. And what sort of terms do you prefer to use? For example, as Lindsay and I try to come up with the slogans and whatnot that we want to use to go along with our podcast, what terms do you use or do you relate to more? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we really need is a whole range of terms. So like in, in my generation, we were really about reclaiming goddess because everything was God, God, he, God, he, God, he. And so what you're calling the divine feminine, we, we were like, you know, Starhawk and others were really saying, you know, goddess as the ultimate divine and not as old man up in the sky or old woman up in the sky, but the imminent present within, presence within, consciousness inside of all beings. So that not only animals, not only plants, but even stones, that there is this pervasive consciousness that goes through everything, that things are all related in an energetic way. So that was, you know, but then some women don't like goddess. You know, there are women who would talk about goddess and they'll capitalize she and her and that kind of, it, it's too much like my upbringing with the Christian stuff, you know, I, I don't really go for it. But then some indigenous women will say, well, we don't really use goddess, but we talk about spirit women or the old people, old woman who never dies they will have a lot of kinship terms in this relationality because it's relational. These cultures are relational. So not somebody up here and all this other stuff down there, but something that we're within the circle. I like that of, I've seen a Seneca woman who uses the term the sacred woman, which could be a living woman or else it could be a being, which is beyond embodiment, you know, uh, like, like the old woman of the Cheyenne or other beings. Then you've got the female creators. I have a whole show called Deosophy, which means goddess wisdom. And so the there are cultural traditions which have the great mother. The Shawnee had a female creator. And those female creators turn up a lot in uh, spider grandmother traditions, both in the, the woodland east of what's now the United States and also the Southwest Pueblo societies in the Navajo. And so I think, you know, it's the same way, like some people like to say matriarchy. Um, I, I was trying to find other words because early on there was this constant attempt to, you, 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 you would mention matriarchy and then you'd end up in a fight because there are no matriarchies according to academia. And it was, uh, you know, there are no societies dominated by women, which is quite, quite right. There are, however, societies in which women have power. And so, you know, these, these battles, you know, because a lot of people would go, well, um, matriarchy implies that men are dominated in that society the way women are dominated in our society. Mm. So, you know, I, I've tried a lot to think of other ways we could describe this so that we would have a way to um, get people to understand the nature of the societies we're talking about is a totally mm -hmm. different, different paradigm. Yeah, yes. I, I heard you say at a podcast that when people use the, the phrase women's history, they think of like Susan B. Anthony and like more recent women's history. Right. And some of the stuff that we're looking at is like really ancient history. And so it's 
hard to find language that encompasses stuff that people really don't. Yeah, we, we have to stretch. We have to stretch the paradigms. And so indigenous history has to be brought into the mix because you can theorize about ancient societies, but I don't think we're really going to understand those without yeah. being able to look at living societies that actually have these values, this different paradigm, yeah. right? So it helps to illuminate what those cultures could look like because in the arguments over matriarchy, there was a very stubborn position that said, well, there just aren't any. And they're saying this in the fa face of the fact that there are living societies that are matrilineal, matrilocal, that have very strong values, very uh, public spheres for women, you know. And so they're just, through their teeth, they're, they're denying the existence of cultures which do, in fact, still exist, you know. And so how can you dismiss that ancient societies could have had those other paradigms when we, we know that there are more recent cultures still in existence that do have them. And, and I think the tendency is to recreate a paradigm of domination. You know, so I even had women say, well, you know, it, it would be just as bad as it was before. If, you know, if you have women dominate men, then it will be, it will be bad. Well, it's bad already because we have men dominating women. You know, the levels of violence in our society, the femicide rate in the United States, four women killed a day by partners or exes. And so um, we have to be able to stretch our minds into thinking about other ways that social organization has existed. And that means you start to have to look at uh, Native societies, you know, Aboriginal societies, some of which are patriarchal. You know, it's 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 very complex. You've got a lot of factors. It's not just hmm. this is all good and that is all bad. A lot of what you're saying, Max, I, I think it lends well to another topic we wanted to really dive in on, which is shamanism in general, especially as you're referencing some indigenous cultures and these really ancient cultures and what they're teaching us shamanism is thrown out around a lot too so like when when we say that what actually from your research is meant by shamanism and what's the origin of this word as well you know what happens is that european culture we lost a lot of the namings that we once had in the process of the witch hunts we lost a lot of the names that we had so european ethnographers noticed these patterns of ecstatic seership, healers, you know, use of the drum or the rattle, uh, ecstatic dance, ways of entering into altered state consciousness, which is something that's very global, and ways of accessing the greater, greater mind, the greater source of life. And so the Russian ethnographers were in touch with people who were called shamans in the Tungusic cultures of Northeastern Asia. So that's how the word shaman started to be used. Now, if you look in Nat Native North America, people don't like being called shamans. You know, they say we have medicine people, you know, and in Australia, they say, well, we don't like medicine people because we have, you know, the clever folk or they have other names. So there's a lot of cultural variability uh, over what we call these people. But it is necessary to have some kind of overarching term to discuss the phenomenon, you know, and to, to, and to compare the patterns which do exist. So, you know, I will use shaman if I don't know for that culture, or I might use medicine person, I might use serious, you know, there's a variety of different terms. Um, but if we don't know from Neolithic uh, Iraq what, what that is, or ancient China, you know, we, we don't necessarily have a term, then 
we wind up using shamans some of the time. But I think it's good practice to be specific if you know the name for the culture. Like in China, you have the Wu. And this, these are mostly women. They're men too. But the character itself that is written Wu is referring to women. So there was even in probably an already patrilineal society of China 35 centuries ago, they still had female spiritual leadership. And we see this pattern quite a lot where you may have a patrilineal society like we see in, in many West African cultures, but then you'd still have these priestesses. You have these women who dance, the women who drum, who um, sing litanies and go into ecstatic states of consciousness, of spiritual union. I'm going to try to put a book out on this because I've studied this for a long time. And the first book I found on this was the classic by Mircea Eliade that's called Shamanism. And, you know, it's a little bit, I kind of cringe at the ism. It's kind of like animism. You know, there's, there's kind of like an objectification in those terms. But um, the writer both presented us with a lot of valuable information, but he also ideologically had a bias that men were the original shamans and only in its decadence did women start to come in. So he saw shamans as very much link, linked to the male hunters. You know, he really didn't see the women in it. So that even if he was talking about Scandinavia, where there's a very strong pattern of the vuller, the female seers, um, he was trying to say, well, you know, it wasn't really the women, it was the men. I learned a lot from that book. I found out about, for example, the machi in Chile, which is another predominantly female spiritual practice. But it was also very annoying because he was trying to put men on top. And I didn't find like his own data actually authenticated what he was trying to claim. So that was a starting point. But then I started really reading the Siberian literature and seeing, well, okay, well, we have these giant drums that like might be 24 inches across, sometimes oval drums of reindeer skin. And they're beating a heartbeat rhythm and they're dancing and they're describing out loud the spirit journey and how they're ascending to the upper worlds, descending to the lower worlds. And then at some point, the person may just sink to the ground. They go into an altered state. And there's often a helper nearby who will kind of look after them and even bring them back because you can go too far. You know, you may, you may, you may need to be called back. And so. Um, this is something that exists in Korea, China, Japan. They had the priestesses called Mikogami, which is kind of priestess of the spirit. Uh, Okinawa, a lot of East Asian societies, which were not really sex egalitarian, but you have this strong female sphere of power in, in the female shamans. And then you've got um, in parts of North America also, uh, the Gitskan people up in Western Canada, you do see this pattern often of women who fill that role. Other societies, actually there, there are traditions that talk about men taking over the ceremonies from women. And so that, that's something also to track. Yeah, I think it's very striking in a lot of these examples you've given and, and the research you've done, how globally shamanism was very female-oriented, predominantly female, if you actually look into the ancient lineage, but it's become so masculinized. I wasn't aware of how common it was in Asian yeah. cultures and South American cultures. They didn't teach us that. I, I think I read in, in some of your work you had, I might mispronounce this, but it was a, a Chuchki proverb. Yes. 
Woman is by nature a shaman. Exactly. And we had spoken to another scholar, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who talked a lot about, too, how women's role was very prominent at life and death. And I actually also recently gave birth. I, I just had a son two months ago. Congratulations. Thank you. That proverb and just that connection women have at, at life and death, etc., and that this has been a global phenomenon across cultures. So those are the portals, you know, giving birth and also, you know, accompanying somebody through death. Those are the portals of life and death. I don't know if you know this book by Barbara Tedlock, mm-hmm. The Shaman and the Woman's Body. Very interesting. She's an anthropologist, no, no, but no. she, her grandmother was Ojibwe. And Barbara Tedlock, she's a little older than me, was in the generation that polio was still around. And she was an iron lung. And at that time, it's like, okay, you're in the iron lung and you're never going to be able to breathe. And you're going to be in this iron lung for the rest of your life. Horrible, horrible sentence. And her grandmother came in, hung a little turtle in front of her eyes in the iron lung and doctored her. And she was up and walking. So she recovered from polio. You wouldn't even know that she had it. And so she went on to study this, and she studied in Siberia and Mongolia and among the uh, Maya people in Guatemala, looking, you know, she wants to pull all this together. But one of the things she highlights is there has been, the scholars passed over how the sphere of birth relates to this travel between the worlds. And so that was something she really wanted to highlight because, you know, it has again to do with this idea of women's powers worlds that women can access in states of spiritual duress, really, when you think about giving birth, you know, it puts you in an altered state. And so she, that book, I really highly recommend it. She's got a lot of great info in there. Mm, I'll have to check that out for sure. I'm curious too, do you feel that women or the feminine are more equipped to hold this role of shaman and of spiritual Connection. Well, I would have said yes at one point. I think that um, anybody has that capacity. You know, there are women who are very stuck in their heads, and there are men who, especially in Native societies, may have more access to the dreaming states. So, but in general, I do see this pattern. And where that pattern begins to shift is when you have a patriarchal culture that does not want to see females in roles of public leadership. And you do have a lot of stories about takeover of the ceremonies in Brazil, in Australia. I'm talking about indigenous societies, the ways that women are um, pushed out, West Africa. There's a lot of these stories about a masculine takeover of of the the spheres of power. Can you give us an example of one of those stories? I haven't haven't heard of this before. Okay, so there's a lot of Brazilian stories and also down into Tierra del Fuego in what's now Argentina, where the men took over, according to this story, they took over the sacred trumpets. It used to be that the women led the ceremonies, they had the sacred trumpets, they kept it away from the men, and then the men overthrow the female power and they take all of those things and now they will punish women who even come near the ceremonies. So there are stories about gang rape because, you know, they're, they're really really um, trying to control and keep women out of it. And so there's a lot of stories about this in some of the places I named. Uh, Sometimes it's not necessarily about the shamanic sphere. It's more about, well, there was a matriarchy and now we have a patriarchy, right? 
So um, in Kenya, among yeah. the Kikuyu, on the same story, the men took over and now the men rule. But um, the clans are still named after women. It's just that now everything is very strictly patrilineal. Or um, in West Africa, well, there's a number of different peoples that have a secret society that's called the Poro Society. And their traditions all say this was originally a female sphere of power, but that men took it over. So there are a lot of instances of this. And what's significant about this is that this is what we call orature. These are oral traditions. These societies didn't have written history. So they pass it on from one generation to the next, and that's how they have history. They have a memory of things being done differently before. There was a prejudice against this in Western Civ, you know, that, well, you know, this is not reliable. They just have these things they say, but it doesn't really mean anything. But actually, uh, some of the scholars have shown that orature can really carry very long memories over time. And in fact, it's when things get written down that you get scribes making things up. You see this with the Christian scriptures. And so there's these other versions, but then somebody comes along and he rewrites it. And then that version gets propagated. And so uh, writing has it, writing also has this disadvantage that it's an elite group. There are the men who write and women don't usually write. We have exceptions to that. Some of the medieval nuns who were in scriptoriums and wrote illuminated manuscripts. But um, there was a bias in Western Civ against the oral tradition that it was not reliable. And yet they've discovered, like, for example, the Bible was oral to oral tradition. We don't have any written copies of Torah or, or the other books of, of the, the Hebrew Tanakh uh, before a certain period of time. Like yeah. The oldest surviving copies are only a few hundred BCE. Now, they probably had other copies that were destroyed, but it's very clear that this was originally an oral tradition. The way the Maori have their creation chant that has all these genealogies embedded in it. And the things that used to really bore us, if we would look at the Bible and it's like, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and all down like, you know, 12 generations. Who cares? Except that the, these genealogies were a history. And what they discovered is there are Egyptian or Hittite written sources that are older than the Hebrew written sources that show, in fact, that there were names like the names that were remembered in the Bible. There was actually a pharaoh. I mean, they're pronouncing it in Hebrew, so it's not quite accurate for the name of the pharaoh, but it's very clear that Shoshenk, you know, is something that's being recorded by Hebrew sources. So um, there's been a lot of study of that, of how old oral traditions preserve things. Another is with the Iliad. There, there are names yeah. that are written down in the Iliad which were no longer in use. They're Mycenaean era, so they're dating to like the 14, 1300s. And those names were no longer in use as place names when the Iliad was written down, say, 700 BCE. So how did they have those names? Somebody, yeah. a bunch of bards, had an oral tradition that they kept going that remembered these names. And there are place names that we see in archaeology that were recorded that correspond to those names. So. That's an interesting way. Yeah, this, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. It reminds me too of the the quote or saying like history is written yeah. by the victors. How like oral tradition can 
it's, it's interesting to think about how oral tradition can be a lot more accurate because it's a lot more. Oh, and, and one, one piece about that that I, I meant, I didn't mention is that oral tradition, when the thing is being recited, everybody there can say, no, no, that's not how it goes. There's like a built-in collective correction. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and shows how, you know, over time we just dropped out so much of what actually happened or how yeah. things actually were to what a lot of your research has uncovered. And another area too, I, I wanted to touch on that's, I guess, kind of a bit of an extension of shamanism is we're seeing a lot today, what people are calling a psychedelic renaissance. There's a lot of renewed interest in psychedelics. There's a lot of yeah. research. MAPS just had a, a conference that over 12,000 people attended in Denver. Who did? MAPS. They're a, um, an organization that, that researches and you know provides uh, different information on psychedelics. Um, and similarly, like I know you've written too about Maria Sabina, who's a well-known like early-ish figure in modern psychedelic history. And similarly, it, it kind of struck me what you were saying earlier, how like men kind of come in and take things over. Like she was a, a powerful sort of figure. And then you had the kind of Western man come and um, get served by her and then just kind of take over psychedelics and our yeah, American, I mean, the, you know, experience. The Western analytical male mind, you know, he's, he's going to analyze it. And what she, it wasn't just Maria Sabina, mm -hmm. it was the entire embed of the Mazatec culture. Her entire society had this, you know, and, and it's really interesting because they there they have what they call the Los Niños Santos, the, the holy children. This is what mm -hmm. they call the little psilocybin mushrooms. And so there was an incantation, not just she, but everybody in the, in the ritual take, takes these mushrooms and she begins chanting and praying and there's a visualization that she does while she's praying you know i am the woman who prays i am the woman who cries out i am the woman who there's this whole list of things where she's actually visualizing herself into this state of consciousness it's incredibly beautiful poetry just just on that level but it's it's entering into this deep state and then she begins to lay on hands. She begins to see the people that are there to be cured, what's going on with them energetically. And it's very powerful. And I think that those of us who are so deeply embedded in an extremely linear culture, extremely overdetermined culture of, you know, this is this and that is that. And, you know, to be able to open the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley called it, to be able to shift consciousness in those ways is really valuable, you know, and, and that incantation that she was doing is something that's very important. Those altered states, the entering into those deep states of spiritual union is something that's really basic to human experience. And we have been artificially separated from that. So there's a hunger for that. And it really crested in the sixties and the early seventies. And now it's back again. You know, because even microdosing, you don't even need need to necessarily trip, but something that can give you a basic shift in perception is is valuable because we get stuck, you know, and the culture does its utmost to keep us stuck. You know, the way that everything is predefined and manipulated and 
you know, it's, it's how do you get back to core reality? You know, the nature of things and that place where, you know, in a lot of the world traditions, you know, you're talking to birds, you're talking to trees, you're getting, we all have these faculties, even people who are not medicine people have faculties that we're not using. We have been culturally bred out of them, you know, and, and I remember reading like about Aboriginal people in Australia and their dreaming is very developed. So, you know, somebody that's 300 miles away on a cattle station knows that their relative just died. You know, they, they know it. They enter into this knowing. And it's like, okay, that, that one's gone. Through a dream? Or, or a, live, a waking vision. You know, they just mm. know it. I mean, it could be through a dream. But, mm. you know, there's a lot of ways that, that this can be accessed. Yeah, I, I, I saw actually that one of the aspects of psychedelics that was researched in the 60s, 70s that hasn't been picked up as much again today is um, psychedelics connection to ESP and our ability to kind of like communicate telepathically, which sounds like perhaps is what's going on in this Australian. That and, and also there's this element that Jung referred to as synchronicity. Where when you get into these spiritually aligned states, things happen. You know, it's not because you say, I'm going to cause this to happen. But suddenly, you know, like I even find that like if you meditate really, really deeply, sometimes things just fall into place, you know, or you have a realization of, okay, this, this maybe is going to be the way to resolve this problem. And, you know, we are really facing a lot right now in terms of the biosphere, the threat to the biosphere. And, you know, the great corporate corporate lords don't want things to change. They're harvesting out the wealth. They, they're happy about it. But, you know, we're going to see a lot of really epical changes in the water supply, the food supply, the weather, storms. You know, they're having tornadoes in Chicago. It used to be, you know, I lived on sort of the borderline between the flat region where the tornadoes would be and then the, kind of the more wooded uh, areas around uh, Lake Michigan. And those tornadoes never came in where we were, but now they are. Well, that, that I think you referenced the seven thinking in indigenous culture. I think to what you're saying, by nature, our, our capital capitalist structures are a lot more short-term focused, right? Like not, not enough of us are thinking in our decision-making of like, what is what I'm doing today going to impact 50, 60 plus years from now, right? People are very focused on like yes. this quarter, this year, you know, like what am I driving, like my profits, uh, which just a very different lens in which to view it. And also, you know, with COVID and the epidemic and everything, you know, it's just like there have to be ways of accessing healing. Your loved one mm-hmm. is vulnerable, you know, whatever their condition is, that they they need a way to access that deep healing power. Things are very un- unstable right now. When you have that instability, it's like, how do you reorient to the best way to move, the best consciousness? And, you know, for me, one of the things I wanted to do, and this is why I've, I have this series called Secret History of the Witches, so it was going to be one book, and what were chapters turned into volumes. So there's now 16 volumes. And wow. I'm, I'm about to uh, publish uh, volume two. It's going to be in two pieces because the Greek material is just like massive, massive literature. And you could go on forever just with that. But uh, So it's going to be book one, book two. But, uh, you know, I was really curious, like, what happened to the priestesses? 
because, you know, Greece is a really strange thing. It's a patriarchal society, but they had goddesses and they had priestesses. They had goddess yeah. temples, right? So right. what happened there? And, you know, what about witch hunts in ancient Greece? And then the the previous book I published was called Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion. There's a tendency <laughs> to uh, to appropriate other cultures because people are spiritually hungry. They don't know where to look. And so for those of us who are of European descent, we need to know where our uh, authentic place to stand is. Turns mm. out that there were sweat houses in Europe, the Irish, the Portuguese, the Czechs, the Russians, the Finns all had sweat houses, right? And they had drums. You know, there were Europeans that had drumming. They had ecstatic ceremony. There's a title in Anglo-Saxon, Libustre, which literally means medicine woman. You know, and, and the word for medicine there is related to the word life. We had that, but we had the witch hunts in Europe. And this is really an important part of what happened in Europe. Why did Europe become this imperial power that tried to wipe out all the other religions? You know, the, the, the enslavement, the conquests that, that came about. What's the history of that? So I really wanted to explain how did the witch hunts come about? You know, and there's a whole story about uh, the church and state link up in, in medieval Europe at the fall of the Roman Empire and then forward. And they were really trying to stamp out these old ethnic religions that existed among the Celts, the Germanics, the Italians, the Slavs, all these people. And so I'm, I, in that book, I tried to document that there really were something that uh, Europeans had in common with the rest of the world. It's it's like the European and European-American cultures became so alienated from our commonality with yeah. South America, Southern Africa, East Africa, you know, the Pacific Islands, all of these places. We had yeah. traditions that were congruent, yeah. like big circle dances where everybody's singing, you know, and there's like this cultural unification of minds that takes place within that context. We had that once, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of cultural recovery to go on because what happens often is you have people saying, okay, I'm going to be a medicine woman in, in the Navajo way, and they don't have any Navajo heritage, you know, yeah. but they're going to start doing sweat lodges right. and they do things like selling sweat lodge ceremonies, which is not supposed to be done. It's a sacred thing. And so there's a lot of yeah. distortions that creep in because they're not embedded in a living culture. So what I call the ripped web of culture, we have to reconstitute it. It's not going to be the same, whatever we wind up doing next. It's not going to be the same as Europe in the 11th century or the 8th century, you know, especially because we live in a globalized world. But we do have, um, we have these capacities and we have these needs you know, we really right. need to be able to access our full humanity in ways that we don't have a cultural ground to stand on mm. anymore. So we have to wake right. up and become aware mm -hmm. of what we had once. And then we reconstitute it. It's interesting you mentioned that, you know, North American European cultures did have these these dance traditions and other traditions that we're just not aware of now. And I know you've written before too that dance and movement is one of the most powerful ways to reach a static state. That was striking to me as well because what do you what do you think it is about movement that allows us to 
to access that? Is it just the, the freedom and you know, not thinking as you move your body? I think there's a way in which energy currents move through the body. Like, for example, mm. a lot of people I know mm. are, are talking about the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve runs yeah. through the head, down through the throat, past the thymus gland, into the torso, so that, like, movement in the torso, it allows the vagus nerve stimulates, stimulates it, but also balances it. So chanting is very powerful for that reason, because this area, this resonance in the chest, actually, it, it's like almost like an adaptogen, if you know that term from herbals. It causes mm. a rebalancing, what became, needs to be brought down and smoothed out, or what needs to be stimulated and brought up. You know, it's uh, that kind of a process. And what I found, like I was doing a lot of trance dance in the 70s, and I would feel memories of painful things release in my body. You know, I'm moving my arms and certain kinds of things would come to my consciousness. And it's like the energy system would open and release. Wow. You know, and there, there's these are mysteries. I mean, we can try to explain it, but really experiencing it is something different. because we have these capacities. It's like if we have a unified field of consciousness instead of this very split, uh, broken up, linear way of doing things, you know, we're not using all our faculties. Yes. So then the question is, how do we get back to that? And it's like forest, yeah. forest bathing, walking in the mountains, chanting, sacred dance, movement, yoga, meditation, all of these things are ways of reconstituting your wholeness because we get we get chopped up you know and pain we, we get this buildup of painful thoughts painful memories the pain is lodged in our body which is why movement is so crucial yeah, our body stores yeah. so much so i wonder if that's why people are so attracted to psychedelics these days because they're so kind of desperate to find ways of reorienting our consciousness in a better direction in this time of chaos. Yeah, I just wonder if that's like a big driver for why people are, why the psychedelic renaissance is. Because we don't have those ways. We don't have that heritage. So it seems like for a lot of people, because psychedelics has become such a popular topic, it's kind of like easy to go to that. It's, that's exactly it. It's easy. I mean, you are not going to be able to go off for three weeks in the mountains necessarily to get to the same place that you would get to. It accelerates your access to those states. Yeah. You, you know? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you have to be careful because excess is also an enemy. You know, you want to be able to in have an integrated way of doing this. But, right, because it used to be such a sacred ceremony, and now it, people don't have those guidelines. As right, much. and so they they want a trip, and they want to, uh, you know, I mean, they can have a good time, but they're not using the sacred uh, medicine in the way that I don't know that it's intended to be. You know, it's just like let's party, and that's that's not to say that the dancing they do while they're partying. I mean, it may it may be helpful to them, but I think that the sacral orientation has yeah. to be in there somewhere. Yeah, I've often. Ref referred to psychedelics as a, a catalyst yeah, that's right like they, they can be a catalyst for, for healing not necessarily a silver yeah. bullet and and i think to to your point you know people who can't go and just be in nature for weeks on end or give up their entire life there's a different way they probably are trying to access this through psychedelic experience. And, and there's such a plethora of different yeah. ways that you yeah. can experience how, how psychedelics to rebalance, now, you know, how to, how to access your core being yeah. because we get away from our core being. We're just 
caught up with, you know, and, and I think digital media, it's like, I work a lot on the computer, but it just, there's a way in which it can pull you out of those deeper states. You know, there's mm-hmm. that addictive quality to it. that The continual dopamine hits that yeah. you get. You're, you're kind of living up here instead of your own body a lot of the yeah. time. I will send you a link sooner or later about the uh, the uh, they are not Venus Venus figurines and it, it's illustrated. It really kind of shows that which we have not been shown. Yeah, you know what are these these ancient female icons? You know what do they look like? Yeah, what do they feel like. To wrap up, just what we typically close with is um, if there's a one primary message you'd like to leave our audience with as we wrap up today. I think we have to recover cultural memory of women, our full spectrum, not these very limited stereotypes that have been enforced on us to the point where we can't even expand our minds past them, but to see the the entire range of who women have been, the capacities we have, and to expand ourselves. We're given these culturally limiting messages, subordinating messages in many ways. You know, this you must be like this, you must be like that. This is why, to me, history is a way to expand our idea of who women have been because it's not this very tight category that, you know, there's only certain things that you can be, but it's broad and it's nature-based, you know, to see ourselves in that way. And where can our audience find you? And Yes. Okay. So my website, suppresshistories.net, not .com. Um, that's the website. However, I keep, um, Eventually, that site's going to have all the content that I've been putting on Facebook for the last 13 years, but I haven't gotten around to creating the navigation pages. So if you really want access to everything, then you have to go onto my Facebook page and use the photo section, Suppress Histories Archives. Uh, The photo section there will um, be a way to navigate because I'm really covering a lot of different kinds of societies and time periods and subjects. And that's a way to go through there and see, you know, like if you're looking for female figurines, those are in there. If you're looking for more recent examples of women who were change makers, that's in there, you know, because I'm really, it's like, you know, don't, don't call me ambitious or anything, but I'm trying to do women's history across the whole planet throughout time. Yeah. And that's a really big order. But, you know, um, eventually I'm going to have that content navigable on the suppresshistories.net site. But there are articles there. And um, unfortunately, my WordPress uh, blog and podcast are currently deprecated because WordPress themes die, it turns out. And so you only get a bunch of gobbledygook if you go to the the site. But uh, eventually I'll have those back too because I'm going to be doing more, especially more podcasts. Uh, It's it's easier to um, share the material verbally rather than having to format pages. (laughs) So Sure. More dis- more discussions are coming. Yeah, the oral tradition. And I also forgot, um, I have open access videos on Max Dashu channel on YouTube. There's a bunch of vid- video content there, and I have stream on demand on the Suppressed Histories portal on Teachable. So there's ancient Egypt and curanderas and healers and about a lot of different topics. And those are other resources that are out there. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining us today and all of the incredible insight that you've shared. Just wow, the amount of knowledge that you have on this topic. Thank you, Max. Thank you both. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating. And you can follow us on Instagram at Mother Unearthed for updates. Thanks for tuning in.